Hello, hello, and welcome to the Face of Food podcast. I'm Fabrice DeClerc, Science Director at EAT, and real pleasure, real honor to have uh, Jin Leung with me today. She's the Climate Program Director at uh, WildAid. So, so welcome, Jin. Tell us a bit about uh, who you are and, and what brought you here to Stockholm. Sure. Um, as you just mentioned, I work at uh, WildAid, which is the Environmental and Wildlife Conservation Group in, based in San Francisco. But we work globally in Asia, across Africa as well. And our focus is really on how we work on demand reduction as a solution to some of the wildlife and conservation problems we have today. The demand reduction, demand reducing demand of what, just to be clear for our listeners, I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Well, so while they, you know, it's work in wildlife trafficking means that they are reducing demand for endangered species, such as sharks, fin, and ivory. Um, We have taken a shift to working on climate as well. So for that, that means the reduction of meat in people's diets. Fantastic. And that's, that's what brings me here to the Eat Forum. This is, I mean, it's a huge transition, right? I mean, I, I started, I work a lot with conservation biology and in the eighties, nineties, it was protected areas as the, you know, the main strategy. And, and now we're really taking a much more systemic approach in conservation, recognizing that not just how we produce food, but also what we're consuming is not just about health, but it's about biodiversity conservation, which I, I think is still a novel concept for, for many people. It's very novel. I think that's one of the reasons why um, why I have a job. <laughs> it's, you know, one of the most important things of our job is not to be judgmental about what motivates people to change their behavior. Um, so is it their personal health? Is it because they love animals? Is it because they care about climate and want to leave a better, cleaner environment for their children? So in that sense, when we say demand, we're really just looking at being non-judgmental about the different factors that make people make decisions in their lives. Kind of the way that marketing companies, you know, they don't say you have to buy Nike because you want to be athletic. You can buy for whatever reason you want. So let's give them those reasons. Yeah, we've been working with the uh, Council of America and they've got this collaboration with universities where they've been putting labels on foods in the cafeterias mm-hmm. that are both health-oriented and environmentally oriented. And what they've found interesting is that the students will often prioritize environment uh, in their choice than health. And there seems to be this reaction of don't tell me what to eat for my own health. But if you tell me what to eat because it has a greater good, that that seems to be a greater motivating force than, than even individual health. And I find that very wonderful just because the youth, I think, is what's obviously going to drive um, all of our work in the future. In the older generation, you actually see public health is still number one. Um, so, you know, it just goes to show that we all still have a role and really should target more than one or two things. Fantastic. So at breakfast in San Francisco, what starts your routine? What's what's on your plate? Um, so my my wonderful husband is the maker of breakfast. Um, so it's almost always oatmeal and fruit. You know, the, we have our own garden and we grow a lot of our own fruit. So it's kind of easy to make oatmeal and just add whatever's growing outside. That's the beauty of California. You know, you get you get to have year-round food. Not not bad. I grew up in Los Angeles, so it's oh. uh, definitely an environment right. that, that I appreciate exactly for for that reason. I say California's full of fruits and nuts, and maybe that's going to lead the dietary transition as well as a social transition. So in terms of, you know, the challenges that you, that your organization really tries to tackle, what are you think that the primary challenges that uh, you guys are addressing, particularly, uh, and how does, you know, this, change in demand consumption facilitate your work and your ultimate goal of trying to improve biodiversity conservation? I think there's, you know, two sets of um, challenges. The first is, you know, just diet and, and meat consumption is very personal. It's a decision people make multiple times a day for 
different cultural, social, economic reasons. So anytime you try to tell somebody what to eat or even suggest that they should eat something differently, it's an immediate, you know, it's very personal. So that's a, a big challenge is how to make it not um, punitive and not an attack on people, but really just trying to inform them of reasons why they may want to change their mind. And I think sort of more internally, and, and by internally, I mean within our community, um, I do think that there's... Our, our community, like the is, community of advocates who work on food and um, climate, for instance, mm-hmm. um, I do feel that people have very set missions and methods of how they approach it, and sometimes the silos means that it's easier to attack each other than it is to attack the much larger problem. You know, recently there have been lots of articles about you know why focus on consumer demand because policy is the only way, and government needs to be accountable. I completely agree that governments need to be accountable, but governments, I think, you know, Gunhild made the governments are people, corporations are people. So why are you thinking that consumers are not people that are going to be in these places? So that's one of my challenges is how do we bridge that gap? I, I couldn't agree with you more. So meat, you talked a bit about meat. What, what's your approach on meat in your day to day, but in your organization? Are the Lancet guidelines helping you? Do you find them controversial? How do you integrate meat in your communication or in your, uh, your strategy? It's a lot of questions. Um, let's start with the Lancet guidelines. I think that kind of scientific evidence is incredibly helpful. Um, not necessarily because people are motivated to change because of science. I think we've found out in behavioral science that science and reading is not the top of anyone's list. But it does help in terms of, you know, you catch somebody's attention and they start thinking about the emotional reasons why they might want to. It gives them prescribed set of things that they could do to know that they're getting a healthy diet, right? So, you know, I have friends who became vegans because of ethical reasons, and then they ended up eating an incredibly unhealthy diet and actually caused more health problems for themselves. So I think, you know, scientific um, evidence is really an important backbone of making sure that People are healthy after they've made these decisions for emotional reasons. For us, it's very much the idea of um, just less meat. Because of, of the scale of which we're trying to work, we are reaching out to mass public. We're not targeting groups that are specifically interested in um, any particular topic. So our strength is really mass media. We do billboards. We do public service announcements on national television shows. So, you know, with that kind of audience, what we what we get is about five to 10 seconds of any average person's time. And so to us, we don't want to create a niche. We don't want to make it a zero sum game. What we just want to say is, hey, just eat a little less. Is that less one less breakfast, one less meal a week, whatever it is that makes sense for you. And what our hope is less that will change everybody's diet, but really get everybody's attention about why they might want to do it. And then to mainstream the idea of a plant forward diet more than anything. And I think mainstreaming is the most important thing we can do because when people, especially in the United States and in in China and other places we work as well, is when you say vegetarian, they people just shut down, right? They assume that they don't want to make those sacrifices. But if you say, hey, do you ever even eat meat for breakfast? Like, no, we don't. Do you eat meat for lunch? Rarely. You're like, wait, you actually are doing pretty good. And then it becomes a very inclusive, empowering movement as opposed to saying vegan or bust, which I I feel like is a problem in our community. I I completely agree. (laughs) I think these categories often just divide us into camps, the breaks of the conversation. I think this much more gradient-based approach you guys having is is really fantastic. What's what's your favorite billboard? Uh, Is there one off the top of the head? You you mentioned billboard as part of your your campaign. Um, I think our latest one, we launched a Valentine's Day and we basically, instead of a huge bouquet of flowers, there's this huge bouquet of like beautiful vegetables and our tagline was simply, you know, show your love. 
And it was show your love to the planet, show your love to your family, you know, just basically showing how vegetables is um, is a positive sort of a aspirational thing to do. And it's more beautiful than flowers even. Yeah, we had a great conversation around that uh, yesterday where we're you know, realizing that often, you know, as parents, you know, when the child's in the house, it's, it's you know, you fill the plate up, eat more, eat more, fill it up. You've got to, you know, you've got to grow and and that, you know, maybe there's now this, uh, this thinking back about showing your love is maybe not so much eat so much, but to eat more of the right and also eat a bit less. Yeah. You know, there's an interesting, um, sort of anecdote is in Asia when McDonald's and KFC got really popular in the last few decades, grandparents would be the ones picking up their uh, grandchildren from school. And if they got a good grade, they'd immediately take them to McDonald's and give them a hamburger because that was a symbol of love is feeding them. And that's like the newest thing they wanted. So why not take some of these traditions of showing love and, and actually just switch the end product? You know, why not just take that same human emotion and make something positive? Out of I, it? I think that's a, a major challenge. My daughter's gym team celebrates <laughs> uh, these competitions by going to do these fast food places. And I was like, hold on a second. Maybe there's a conflict here. And, you know, what would be a celebratory meal, uh, but that is uh, also recognizing, I mean, just the, the health part as well as the environmental part, but not taking the pleasure out of that celebration exactly uh, part of love so have you guys tried the uh, the planetary health diet at, at home or, or if you were to if you think of your, your day-to-day meal what would be some of the biggest challenges uh, for you in terms of moving in that direction um well for us we're lucky we live in california so we have access to a lot of the fruits and vegetables and you know also the fish and the nuts um so for us, the challenge hasn't been acquiring the the foods, which um, I know is is not the same for everybody, but it really has been just remembering to mix it up a little bit, right? Because I think one problem, and, and it was shown in some of the videos, is people assume that it looks it looks bland and boring or you just boil everything. So how do we inject some of our culture and our ethnic cooking and some of the things that we love about going out and eating big meat meals, for example? How do we bring some of those things back into the set of ingredients. And part of it is, I think it's like Iron Chef or, you know, the, the popularity of cooking shows. You, you're given a set bunch of ingredients and you can make a million different things with it. So why don't people think about it as a creative opportunity instead of a punitive opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I always reflect on that, you know, a lot of the messages that we're seeing are, are really focused on reduced meat and reduced climate. And that's, you know, we're calling for reducing one species out of diet, but there's 10,000, 30,000 uh, plant varieties and species that are, are waiting to be brought back into food. So, mm-hmm. so a question about whether, you know, are we focusing too much on the reduce and, and, and take away part and not enough on the opportunity, like your, your vegetable bouquet is flagging to, to explore, to, to increase consumption of these foods that really are fundamentally protective in, in our diets. Yeah, I think very much so. You know, if you go to the typical American supermarket and you look at vegetables, it's like you have broccoli and it's green and then you've got lettuce and it's like one type of lettuce. It's, it, it, with that diet, there's 20 kinds of meat and one kind of vegetable. It makes it really hard for people to be creative. Whereas, you know, in, in China, for example, where I live for a long time, you go to the vegetable market, there's about 50 different kinds of green vegetables that all have slightly different flavors. So then, you know, your palate changes because what is available to you and what is visually attractive to you changes. So I think one big part of it is working with people to make whole foods um, attractive and interesting again, and not just the steak because that's the default easy option. Um, 
that, that big, a big challenge to, to go <laughs> towards. So if you were, so, so people often inspire a lot of the, of actions and, you know, uh, you know, Gunhild spoke to some people in her opening address. So, you know, food is also about a social event and uh, having, sharing conversation with people. If, if you could invite someone to have a dinner with you, who, who would that be? And, and tell us a bit about why. Hmm. I think I would pick probably a few. I would pick leaders and women leaders in the food and climate movement. So, you know, Alice Waters from California, just because I've adored her for many years. Um, you know, Michelle Obama is like a wonderful role model who's taken this idea of how to grow your own food and, and talking to youth. Um, someone like Christiana Figueres and bringing these people together to talk about how their interests can coalesce to create a new generation that focuses on food and climate. What would you serve at the, at this meal? Um, I think for that group, I would, I would actually serve a traditional, um, sort of Chinese vegetarian, uh, meal. I think, you know, something people always forget is that, you know, the idea again of being punitive, like, oh, vegetarian just means like a salad. That's so not the case that in many traditions, um, because vegetables were so much more featured, there's, you know, China has a couple thousand years of history of creating amazing, uh, delicious vegetarian foods. And I think, that's why I would want to serve it to them to basically wake them up and be like, look, many different cultures, um, aside from yours, have these interesting ideas. How do we bring sort of this knowledge of tradition to what you guys are doing in food and climate and, and, uh, government? Yeah, it's, I find it's often quite a Western dominated conversation, right? And again, we're, we're seeing the reduce, reduce meat consumption. We look at the data that really is a major challenge for, for Europe, US, Canada, and Australia. But when you look at Vietnam, Southeast Asia, uh, India, we're still well below what we consider to be harmful, uh, harmful food. And so I get told quite a bit by people, you know, the Lancet diet's impossible. You can't cut meat out that much. But when you look at the data, there's infinite number of examples of cultures and recipes that are very much within that recommendation and that are completely enjoyable. I actually gave a talk yesterday, which was focusing on that, which is, you know, places like Vietnam, China, a lot of places in Asia and India, their levels of meat consumption are not that far up. So part of the challenge is why do we not make their cultures and their food a shining example and ask them to take a global commitment and global leadership on these issues instead of saying you must eat less meat, just say, hey, you're already eating not that much meat. Why don't we celebrate? Like, why don't we look at your diet and see what you're doing right as opposed to, you know, stern warnings about cutting down. And, and I think that's something that, you know, having lived and worked in Asia, they understand that there's a hypocrisy there when Western countries are pointing fingers outside. So, you know, in order for this to work, Western countries definitely need to lead by example. I think, I think that's a tremendous message. And quite often we put the burden on developing countries or other countries. And I think the, one of the big messages is for, for the U.S., for Europe, that actually much of the change needs to be in our countries and that there are fantastic examples from other parts of, uh, of the world. Are you guys working in Asia on, uh, on biodiversity and climate? Yeah, very much so. So we work, um, all across Asia, you know, especially, uh, in China and greater China is, is, uh, one of our traditional sort of, we've worked there for over 20 years. So it's pretty exciting to see the development, but also how people are embracing, um, climate change and really interested in sort of climate activism. So this is, to me, like giving them another outlet for people to be climate advocates in a simple daily way, right? Without having to do that much or take that much time out of their day. It's just what you order. And I think that's really empowering. Tell us a bit about what the conversation is in, in China. When you interact with people in uh, uh, in that country, what's their approach to conservation? What are some of the big challenges that they're concerned about? And, and what do you see as some of the big motivators uh, for, for change? 
Well, you know, I think in China, one of the wonderful things is just the the speed at, at which the general population is just deceptive that climate change is a huge issue and um, that something needs to be done about it. You know, I live in America and there's already there's a huge debate about whether or not climate change even exists. So there's already that challenge. So in China, people are very open. Um, you know, they've adopted a bike share programs, a lot of ways because they see the air pollution outside or they understand that this is a huge problem for their children. Um, and so they've adopted things like like on the transportation side. So I think this next challenge now is sharing a little more information because it's, as you said earlier, it's not very well known the impact of our diets on planetary health. So how do we bring that into the mainstream, make that part of the conversation? Because in some ways they already have all the tools at hand, right? They have all the vegetables and a history of eating that way. So let's celebrate that instead of giving the McDonald's, let's, let's actually celebrate what they already have. Is, is that working? I think it's working. Um, it takes time because it's a behavioral change. And there's very much this in every, all around the world, right? Where when you get richer, you buy more meat. It's just one of those natural things, you know, study what's like the first thing you buy is a cell phone. The second thing you buy is more meat in a developing country when you go above a certain endpoint. So that's, that's happening in China as well. But I think like everything else, that's a social norm. You think, oh, I have money, I buy more meat. So if it's a social norm, it can be changed. I'd, I'd love to know where that norm comes out. I see a lot of companies you say, as income grows, meat consumption grows. And I'm like, is that is that inherent? Is that automatic? Or or, or are there ways that you know we we recognize that we can leapfrog or either maintain you know plant based diets that are that are aspirational? And I think that's I mean, aspirational is a word, right? Because if you're talking about it giving them, for example, the idea of sustainability is a huge the catchphrase right now in China, just idea of sustainability. They're not sure exactly what that means or how to do that in different ways. But if you link eating a plant-based diet that they're already more used to, to sustainability, then you're making it trendy. So it's no longer the aspiration of, you don't even have to question where the meat aspiration comes from because you're already swapping it in for this, you know, cool phrase of sustainability. And that's what we're hoping to do is sort of pick up on that on that trend. And for biodiversity in China, what's, what's the conversation around biodiversity? It's it become a really hot topic and, and, you know, lots of things have been happening. You know, the government has um, banned ivory recently and they're taking a lot of interest in shark fin and just like marine preservation. So, uh, you know, China's hosting the biodiversity conference next year. And yeah, one fantastic. Of the, yeah. We'll they're, be there. Okay, great. Um, and I think, so I think there's a real awareness now and a real love, um, in the public for their animals and just understanding it. What hasn't happened is an awareness of how, you know, diet or, or their transportation decisions affects it. So again, it's that link. And the more we talk about it and the more we can educate people, the more I think, again, we can have individuals make a difference in this larger scale. That's tremendous, tremendous. So, so we're going to wrap up slowly. And one of the things that, you know, Gunhild started with uh, uh, yesterday morning that really has think, captured the imagination of many people has been the youth movement and their uh, their capacity to really articulate this this urgency. So if you're leading a, a protest movement, what's a, what's your banner and what's the protest that you're standing in front of? <laughs> huh. That's a good one. I would actually talk about, I know it's bland, but just sustainability and just what it means to live a mindful life. And by that, I mean, and that's why it's not a really good protest banner, but it's this idea of mindfulness. You know, if you want to eat meat, no one's going to take away your freedom, but just know why you're eating it. Is it because it's the default option or is it because you want it? And if it's because you want it, go ahead, but just know what you're doing. And I think that's something that's missing is, you know, as you buy a card, 
make the mindful decision to buy an electric car. You know, just think more about the consumption decisions. Like, don't buy throwaway clothes. Like, simple things. You know, just take two seconds. Be mindful. That's not a great protest banner, but that would be mine. <laughs> oh, I, I know it's not a great protest banner, but I think this capacity to be self-critical, self-reflective, and, and really think about what the impacts are is such a critical point. Uh, on the flip side, what's uh, what have you seen as a bright spot that you point to and say that gives you gives you hope, gives you evidence that yeah, we're we're potentially on the right journey? Um, the young leaders you just mentioned, you know, Greta. Thunberg, I'm killing her name, but, um, you know, seeing people like her talk on these issues in, in simple, clear, passionate language means that it's not all about science. It's not about the academy or institutions or government. It's about the future. And she's the symbol of that. So I would march behind her any day. Jen from Wild Aid, it's been fantastic 20 minutes with you. So happy to have you here at the Eat Stock of Food Forum. Congratulations on, on your fantastic work and, and looking forward to hearing more from you uh, hopefully next year. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. 